This is the Intoxicated Podcast. Shamed, and you have some really good stuff to share. And also, you have a, a lot of courage sharing your story because you have shared some really raw personal stuff. So I do commend you for that. So I'm excited to hear your story and your journey, your journey to sobriety. Let's do it. Let's do it. <laughs> Thanks, man. Yeah, well, I guess, should we just start at the beginning? Let's start at the beginning. I mean, I, I think I had a pretty normal middle, mm-hmm. upper middle class childhood. Um, I can, my, my earliest memories with beer, with alcohol of any kind was, was, you know, my dad on a Saturday afternoon would say, hey, go get me a beer and I'd bring it back and I'd get a, I'd get a sip. Um, and, you know, the, the attraction of it for me at that age wasn't, the taste, although I never really thought it tasted bad. I know a lot of kids when they're young are like, yeah, that's gross. Um, but it was the guy that I looked up to most in the mm-hmm. world, you know, offered me a chance to share something with him. And didn't matter what it was, I was going to be excited about that. Um, in fact, I'll, I'll take that one step further. The I grew up just south of Indianapolis for the first 13 years of my life anyway. And... Um, we went to the Indianapolis 500 um, every year. Uh, we lived in Indiana, and the first time I got to go, I was five years old. My dad woke me up. Um, I wasn't expecting to go, but my mom was sick, and he woke up and he's got this other ticket, and he says, "Come on, let's go to the race." And I was like super pumped up. <laughs> I mean, I was over the moon about it, and. Um, we get to the track, you know, we've got to fight the traffic, and there's just hordes of people. I mean, there's 300,000 people at this event. And we get there, and we're walking under the grandstands to come up to find our seat, and somebody spills, a, like, a 16-ounce beer from the grandstands, mm. and it just pours all over me. Oh, really? So there I am, five years old. I am <laughs> just drenched in beer. Uh, I'm going to sit in the hot sun with that all over me all day. Mm. But it, it didn't really bother me. I mean, the... The smell it made me mm. think of my dad, and here I was with my dad. And then we get out, we get we get to the track, and the cars start going around, and there's this big red Budweiser car, and my dad drank Budweiser beer. So I'm like, I don't know who that is. It happened to be, you know, Mario Andretti, the mm-hmm. arguably best race car driver yeah. in history, but yeah. I didn't know who that was or anything about him. I just knew he drove the Budweiser car, and I'm like, that's who I'm rooting for, because <laughs> that was the beer of my dad. My dad's beer. So yeah. it's starting out not only not only innocent, but like as a really joyous thing for me, beer as a, as a kid. And, um, and I think, you know, my progression was pretty normal. Mm -hmm. Um, probably much like your story. Yeah. Well, let me ask you this too. How was your dad? I mean, with alcohol, was there anything unusual? I mean, did you know growing up what it, 
would it change his behavior? Was was he okay with it? Could he hold his liquor, quote unquote? He could. In fact, um, I think for the the era that he grew up in, he was as normal as normal can be. He drank beer on the weekends. He drank usually two gin and tonics every night, maybe a third once in a while. But I never, I still to this day, I can only think of two times that I've ever seen my dad, and I wouldn't even use the word drunk, but just mm -hmm. a little more tipsy than normal. Mm -hmm. And this is a man that drank every single day. Mm -hmm. um, but it, it was not ever to excess that, like I said, only, and one of the two times was at a wedding. I mean, mm -hmm. everyone goes a little overboard at a wedding, or, or it's certainly allowable. Yeah. But the influence for my dad wasn't necessarily the amount. It was just the ever-presentness mm -hmm. of it. So when I when I moved out on my own and my wife and I got, well, we lived together first and then eventually got married, drinking every day was, um, it wasn't even something I thought about. I didn't think about whether it's good or bad to drink every day. It just was going to happen. It's just mm -hmm. part of being an adult. So that's... I guess the biggest influence mm -hmm. um, that my dad had yeah. on me. So, so just just having it around, always having a beer, always having a gin and tonic or two at night. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yep. My, now my mom didn't. She drinks now. She has for maybe ten years now. Maybe it's longer than that. I don't know. But for most of my growing up, she didn't. It would give her a headache, or it would make her not feel good, and she just didn't bother with it. So I kind of had both sides of the story there in my own family but I definitely um, admired my dad for that being part of his life yeah if that makes yeah, any sense it does yeah so you learned growing up about beer Budweiser uh, your, your dad drinks you know yeah every day um, but you know not to the the point of, of being blackout drunk so yeah, tell me more about that. So this is kind of the you're the foundation of your relationship with alcohol. Yeah, and I think it continued. It's funny because I think sometimes about when did my drinking turn abnormal, mm -hmm. and I think probably a lot of people have had this this conversation in their own head. But I can remember in middle school. I can remember my friends and I found a six pack of beer up in a tree in our neighborhood. <laughs> Certainly, it was hidden there by some high schoolers in the okay, neighborhood yeah. that they'd come back for later, <laughs> and they didn't expect a bunch of seventh graders to find it. Yeah. But we did, and I think there were four of us, and we went out in the woods and took that six-pack down mm -hmm. and just thought it was the greatest thing ever. Mm -hmm. All of our fathers were drinkers, so we didn't think – I mean, we knew we had to hide what we were doing from the adults, but we didn't think anything was wrong with what we were doing. We were just doing it a little earlier. Mm -hmm. And then in high school – um, we actually moved my freshman year of high school from the Midwest to New Jersey. Okay. That was pretty traumatic for me. Yeah. I've, I've really tried to to think about whether that trauma had anything to do with my alcoholism, and I really can't pin my addiction on the, mm -hmm. the trauma. And when I say trauma, high school's a tough time to move, man. Uh, I, sure. I moved in the middle of my freshman year into yeah, a very middle. clicky, suburban, white, uh, you know, yeah. high school where everyone already had their friends and they had no interest in this kid from the Midwest, just none. So, but I got invited to parties here and there. Not, not, I wasn't by any means the most popular guy, uh, but I wasn't sitting on the sidelines completely either. That's when I really, 
the first memories I have of alcohol really hitting me in this euphoric kind of mm. way. I can remember, and, and that wasn't necessarily at parties. I had a couple of really good friends, and we did everything together. And we would, we'd come across alcohol in different ways. We'd buy it from an older kid, or we would, I can remember we had this, we had this picnic set that someone had given my family for Christmas, and it just sat in the basement and had a plastic ketchup dispenser and a mustard dispenser and a relish dispenser and just all these plastic mm-hmm. containers. And my parents never opened it. It just sat there and sat there and mm-hmm. sat there. And my friend Brad and I, we took it and we used each of the different containers to skim a little bit off of all the bottles in my parents' liquor cabinet and his <laughs> parents' liquor cabinet. So we had like 20 plastic bottles that each had about oh, okay. three shots of liquor in them because mm-hmm. we figured we could skim all that and get away oh, with that. But so experiences with Brad, where we'd go out in the woods with our plastic ketchup ketchup <laughs> bottle and drink out of that, I can just remember this this feeling like this is heaven. This mm. is perfection. Mm-hmm. Nothing, I couldn't imagine anything to feel this good. So that was the, the, the first time that the euphoria hit. But I was doing it along with Brad, and everyone else in high school was, was doing it either probably not out of picnic sets but they were having parties on the weekends and you know there's a good deal of the conversation as a high schooler that's dominated by alcohol and when are we going to party next and you know who can do the most shots and who handles their beer the best Mm -hmm. so I felt very normal at that time Mm -hmm. the first little bit of kind of a glimpse of abnormality in high school for me was I remember being at a party and arguing with my girlfriend Nothing physical, but I just, that was the first time I didn't feel good. I woke up the next day, and I, I we had both been drinking, and we had argued, and we'd kind of made asses of ourselves in front of all of our friends, and I remember just feeling ashamed of my behavior, and like I wish I had a do-over. I, I wasn't even close to any kind of concept that the alcohol is what made me do that, or or I need to look at my drinking or think about not drinking. That didn't even come close to entering into my mind. But there was the first glimpse of shame for my actions mm-hmm. from drinking. Yeah. So, well, tell me a little bit more about that. So you guys were, were both intoxicated, and you wouldn't have, quote-unquote, made an ass of yourself if you were sober. Is, is that what you're implying? Or? Yeah. I And like most alcohol-fueled mm-hmm. arguments. I don't remember the details. I don't mm-hmm. remember what we were arguing about. Probably probably had some tinge of jealousy on my side. Mm-hmm. I'm definitely a jealous yeah. person, always have been. Yeah. So I don't remember if she was talking to someone and I didn't mm-hmm. like it or if I, you know, asked her her opinion on something and I didn't like the answer she gave me. I honestly don't remember. Yeah. But I remember being outside. It was a house party. Someone's parents weren't home, and we were in someone's house drinking, and there were probably 50 people there. And I remember being outside and arguing, and people would come out and check on us, and then Mm. we kind of went our separate ways. I don't remember how either of us got home, and I just felt bad about it and kind of felt this urge for a do-over, which... You know that's not necessarily possible, but that's that's what I wanted to. I did. I wanted to go to the beginning of that party again. I didn't want to not drink. That never entered my mind. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to handle myself better. I yeah, wanted to be more I mature. You. I wanted to yeah. not let whatever fueled that fire fuel that fire. Mm-hmm. But so that so that 
that was not common in high school. Mm-hmm. It happened a few times, but definitely nothing out of the ordinary. I mean, all my friends had spats with their girlfriends, and truth be told, it was mostly when they were drinking. Mm-hmm. Didn't occur to any of us that the alcohol was causing the problem, but that's kind of what happened. And then I went to college and joined a fraternity. Um, that, again, that's not something that I considered should I or shouldn't I. That was just for whatever reason, that was the path I was going to be on. My father had been in a fraternity, but I don't remember that being terribly influential. Just mm-hmm. older kids that I was friends with were all in fraternities, and that's just what you do. Mm-hmm. A lot a lot of my life through adolescence, even into adulthood, was this is just what you do. I didn't mm-hmm. spend a lot of time mm-hmm. thinking about it. Yeah. Where did you go to school, man? Indiana University. Okay. We were, while I was there, we were voted by whatever magazine does the voting. I don't remember. The number one party school in the country for oh, one year. Oh, okay. Super proud of that. Yeah. My boy. sister went to Clemson, and they <laughs> won it a few years later while my sister was at Clemson. Oh, okay. So I remember my dad made a note of that. Uh, we were both at the party, the number one party school in the country. Oh, okay. While it was voted number one party school. All right. Well, good job. Thank you. <laughs> uh, the, I remember, here's something I remember specific to the fraternity I joined, mm-hmm. the one I chose. My father was an SAE at, at New Hampshire, like nowhere near Indiana, but I would would have still been considered a legacy, and that would have made, I don't remember the details, it would have made my getting into SAE at Indiana somewhat easier. Mm-hmm. But they were known, I mean, I'm a first semester freshman, and I knew full well that they were known for cocaine, mm-hmm. and I just wanted no part of that. I had mm-hmm. smoked weed a couple of times in high school, and I guess... Nancy Reagan had done an effective job of oh, scaring yeah. me to stay away from drugs because yeah. the weed didn't do anything for me and I just had no interest in trying mm-hmm. anything else. But I knew I liked booze at that mm-hmm. point. Man, I love booze. Oh, okay. So when I found out you know, that the SAEs where I was a legacy were known for cocaine use, I was like, I'm not going there. I'm going to do the safe route, Jason. Mm-hmm. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to wreck my life. I'm okay. going to stick with alcohol. I'm going to find a fraternity <laughs> where booze is king. Yeah. And I remember having that very conscious thought that I'm making this super wise decision okay. to stay away from something that yeah. could mess up my life. Okay. I'm only going to drink yeah. like mass mm-hmm. quantities. That can't hurt me. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of an overriding feeling I had. I've, uh, I've written and talked about the fact that, you know, Everyone gets taught at a young age that the undertow in the ocean is deadly. The ocean might look peaceful and mm-hmm. might be fun to play in, but that undertow can get you. Mm-hmm. I wish someone would have equated the undertow of alcohol, you know, the, the fact that alcohol can get you, even though you don't maybe believe that it can. I wish someone mm-hmm. had taught me that. Because yeah. everything in my life relating to alcohol was positive at that point, except mm-hmm. for these couple of arguments with girlfriends, everything else. Yeah. It was just this euphoric feeling, and it's this harmless thing that everyone, everyone, literally everyone in my life was mm-hmm. doing yeah. at that point. Well, and you talked about that, too. It's, it's hard to, to be cognizant of this undertone, alcohol, when everyone else is doing it. Everyone in your life is doing it. Yeah, and, and seemingly without problems. Mm-hmm. I mean, I look back now, and I, I can see situations where people were in trouble and at the time I didn't realize it and now looking mm-hmm. through the lens of someone who's gone through a great deal of trouble mm-hmm. myself I can see it but you know at the time it was all about not getting caught right I'm 18 19 I just don't want to get busted just don't mm-hmm. want to get and I did I get, my first semester my freshman year 
I was in a car and we went to a liquor store and I think someone had a fake ID, I don't remember, but they went in and they bought beer and they came out and we were followed by undercover cops and they pulled us over a couple of blocks later and they wrote us all tickets and mm. we all got, what do they call it, deferment or whatever. We mm. we just had to promise never to do it again and pay a fine and that was our the entirety of our sentence. But that's all alcohol was, was euphoria and try not to get caught. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which kind of maybe adds a little bit more to the excitement of it. You know, absolutely, absolutely. Um, yeah. And being in the fraternity certainly helped because we didn't have to go to the bars to get alcohol. Our, our older fraternity brothers would, one of them on a Friday afternoon would say, hey, all right, I'm going on a beer run for the youngins. What do y'all need? And we'd give them money, and then he'd come back with a carload of alcohol and distribute it to the mm-hmm. underage kids. And there were enough of us running around this fraternity house, and we had sororities in the neighborhood that would come over and hang out with us. And we really didn't have any need to go to the bars at that mm-hmm. point. But uh, yeah, it was all it was all upside at that point. Yeah, yeah. So, so you in a frat, you graduate college, I assume. Yes. So, yeah, the, the alcohol didn't take you under at that time. You were able to get a, a degree. And, yeah, so, so tell me more about that. Like, um, so you're out of college. What about your drinking career? Was it still everything all good for a while? Yeah, I mean, um, w- when I look back now on graduating college, I, I had a 2.99 grade point average, which I always round up to a 3.0, yeah. obviously. <laughs> I mean, Definitely. What else are you going to say? <laughs> but not terrible, but way, way below potential. I mean, yeah. I, I would, in a class, I would figure out if I if the teacher wrote exams based on lectures or the book, because every, mm-hmm. every professor I ever had did one or the other. Mm. And then if it was based on lecture, then I'd drag my, you know, tired ass to class and make sure I got to the lecture. And if it was on the book and not the lecture, I wouldn't even go to mm-hmm. class ever. I would just read the book and mm-hmm. and just skim by with that B average. And looking back, man, I could have done so much more with just moderate effort. Mm-hmm. But my life literally revolved around the fraternity and, and the fraternity revolved around drinking. Um, but so I, so I get out of school and I got a de- pretty good job, really a mm-hmm. sales job. I was a marketing major and I got a sales job. Mm-hmm. That's with very few exceptions. That's what you're going to do. And we moved to Minnesota. My girlfriend at the time, now my wife, mm-hmm. Sherry came with me to Minnesota. She was done with school as well. And she was just kind of up for an adventure. And, um, she was happy to, to come to Minnesota with me and, uh, yeah, I, I can some of the best times I can remember drinking were early on in this kind of entry level sales position. Me and the other folks in the sales office, a couple of us anyway, we would go on Friday after work to this Applebee's. I mean, <laughs> of all places, right? I'm mm-hmm. not I'm not a chain kind of a guy, but yeah. it was right by the office, and we'd go and we I, I can remember calling Sharon and be like, yeah, we're just gonna go for a, a beer happy hour at Applebee's, and then six hours later, you know, I'd mm. somehow make it home. But it was all really normal because everyone else was doing it. Everyone in the office I worked in, other people my age, young 20s that I would meet around town. It was so still, no alarm bells. Yeah. The, the thing that started to change at that point is the arguing with my then girlfriend yeah. and eventual wife kind of amped up. Yeah. Um, we, we lived in this apartment. We both smoked at the time, and we had a 
we didn't smoke in the apartment. We had a balcony, and I can remember going out on the balcony when we be had would have been arguing with a drink and a cigarette, and I'd hear the lock on the balcony door lock behind <laughs> me, and I was just screwed. I was out there for until she calmed down enough to let me back in. Oh really? Okay. Yeah, that happened a, a few times. Yeah. Um, so was the, were the arguments ever about alcohol? At that point, no. She okay. was still partying at that point. Yeah. I shouldn't say no. I mean, I I drank more than she did for sure. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure there were times that they were, but they were often just alcohol-induced arguments about any little thing you can think of. I mean, mm-hmm. any little thing you can think mm-hmm. of. A remark that if I hadn't been drinking would have been, I mean, my wife's very sarcastic and very mm-hmm. funny. A remark that would have been sarcastic and I would have just bent over laughing at how funny it was, but because I had a few drinks in me, I took it as an insult. And, you know, we'd be off and running, arguing about Mm -hmm. it. And, you know, frankly, and Sherry, be the first to admit, she has a pretty good temper. So often it would be something I would say to her that would set it off. It wasn't always one way. That's why, that's what's so insidious about this, Jason. I didn't Mm -hmm. think I had a problem because Mm -hmm. sometimes I'd cause the argument, sometimes she'd cause it. Alcohol was ever present. We... We knew that it was part of our lives, but we didn't blame it for mm-hmm. any of the problems. Mm-hmm. Neither of us did at this point. So, yeah. It, but but that's definitely when things started to. Well, turn. I mean, this like as you were sharing that too, I, I thought of you in high school and having an argument with your your girlfriend at the time. So, it sounds like alcohol for you removes that filter. So if you're feeling slighted, or not even the filter, I wonder if alcohol just enhances those feelings of jealousy or I don't know what I'm trying to say but you mentioned that she would say something sarcastic if you were sober you would be fine with it yeah but if you're drinking you're not well I think and I think you and I have talked about this alcohol takes well whatever your addiction is Mm -hmm. takes whatever mood you're in and just kind of enhances it yeah. So if I was in a crabby mood to begin mm-hmm. with, I just had a crappy day. Yeah, that makes and sense. And then I would drink to, to ease the, you know, oh, this is going to relax me. I'm going to have a couple drinks. Mm-hmm. And then she would make a joke about something I said or something I did or, yeah. or you know, the stupid-looking shirt I was wearing or whatever. Mm-hmm. If I was in a good mood, that'd be great. That's a funny joke. Yeah. Let's laugh yeah. about how stupid my shirt looks. But if I'm in a bad mood, why are you coming For down sure. on me like that? For sure. And... We'd be off and running as yeah. far as arguments concerned. Well, and that's interesting because, like, you wouldn't even, like, you were saying at this time you wouldn't even equate it. Yeah. It's like, wow, like, is, is alcohol making it so we argue more? Yeah. <laughs> no. It was just exactly right. It was just part of life and yeah. and also part of life were arguments. And alcohol was like breathing to me at that point. It's just what we do. We need the oxygen. We drink, the, you know, everyone, everyone does mm-hmm. it. Why would I be any different? Well, that's the one, like, major negative about alcohol you mentioned insidious is just people relationships in particular when people are drinking and their arguments they can get so nasty and they can turn people so nasty anyway oh yeah we would we would say things that i mean just the next time and often the the further along in my drinking career i became Mm -hmm. i went I would be to a point of blackout and I would say yeah. things and Sherry would tell me what I said in the morning and I wouldn't yeah, even believe her. Sure. I wouldn't believe that, that were, those words could come out of my mouth. Yeah, yeah and, I, and I've heard that several times in my own therapy practice sure. as well. So things where you guys would, would have arguments but nothing to come up on the radar of, okay, this is an issue. 
so you're in Minnesota. You what, what what's next? You know, what's next in your journey and your relationship with alcohol? So I would say this the the scale would start to tip if you think mm-hmm. of it as a balanced scale from the euphoria mm-hmm. and the good feelings just being so overwhelmingly positive that the negative that was happening didn't even register it would start to to switch mm-hmm. and part of what happened is my wife Sherry matured like a normal person okay which is great for her but it was <laughs> awful for me because yeah. You know, she got into her mid-20s. We started talking about having kids. Mm-hmm. Her drinking declined. Her drinking declined for two th- two reasons. One, I think that's fairly normal as you get older. You you just aren't into going out and partying and having a headache the next day and wasting half your day. The other reason her drinking declined is she started to get really disgusted with my drinking. Uh-huh. So she just started to get turned off with the whole idea of alcohol. Yeah, and this was mid-20s for you guys? Yeah, yep. It was, it was mid-20s. But for me, I still, I mean, 10 years into our relationship, which would have been 2004, mm-hmm. I wrote her a letter about a relationship, and I mentioned in the letter that my, my I drink too much. Mm-hmm. I, I was at that point able to acknowledge, yes, I drink too much. Yeah. And yeah, daily drinking was still totally normal to me because I had seen it my whole life. But... Whereas my dad, for instance, would have two gin and tonics. I would have whatever I was drinking at the time. I'd go have two. Mm-hmm. And I'd be like, man, I feel good. I'm going to have a third. Yeah. And I'm going to have a fourth. And then I never got to the point where I was drinking a whole you know, bottle of whiskey or vodka in a night. But I would, here's my goal. I'm going to have two drinks, eat dinner, mm-hmm. watch TV, go to bed. And I would have those two drinks and kind of nibble at dinner and kind of push it aside and go have another drink and then have another drink mm-hmm. and then might have a little bit more to drink or more to eat pardon me but by then i mean i was yeah. in a blackout state yeah and i'd wake up in the morning and i wouldn't remember okay. how i had transferred from one or two drinks to feeling like crap and and i'd gone too far again yeah and that was it was you know not nightly but it was fairly nightly and it was mm-hmm. the other thing jason it got to be so stressful the struggle for myself between that second and third drink like okay mm-hmm. I've, I, I'm a normal person right now I've come home for it's Tuesday I worked all day I worked hard I was productive I got stuff done I am having my two cocktails and then man I want that third so bad but no it's Tuesday it's not a weekend mm-hmm. that's it and and the inner battle the amount of just turmoil I mean my mind would just race with, with all these thoughts and the battle that would take place it wasn't even it wasn't sherry she wasn't even involved it was me battling myself for whether or not to have that third drink and if something had gone wrong during the day or if the broncos had lost on oh, monday yeah. night it just it didn't matter yeah. what it was yeah. i'd be like screw it yeah. i'm gonna pour another drink and so this started happening after you wrote that letter to sherry kind of for or yeah, when about did that occur that kind of just in early adulthood, I guess it would yeah. be hard for me to pinpoint. It was for a long time that I would have that kind of inner battle, but I was still drinking nightly. Yeah. The, the first time that I really said, okay, you might have a problem, was my daughter was five years old, and we were going, I mentioned earlier, the mm-hmm. Indianapolis 500. We were going to the race, and my Sherry's rule was the kids have to be five before you can take them to the race because okay. she wanted their eardrums to be uh, five years old yeah, to deal enough. with all the sound and all the sitting for wiggly little bottoms. Yeah. So there were a couple of good reasons. But anyway, Catherine was five, so that would have been 
07. I believe that's right. And we went to the race, and um, I was I was going with friends from college at this point. I wasn't going with my parents. But this was just a rare occasion when my parents were able to make it. So my parents were at that race, and my daughter and my nephew came with us also, who was six. So it's just going to be this great family thing. And I had decided a month or so before the race that I think I've got a problem and I'm not going to drink. Mm-hmm. And the mental anguish that I went through mm-hmm. being at this event that I had always equated with beer. There's 300,000 other people there. And you literally can sit in your seat. Now, you can't see all 300,000 people. You can't make out what they're doing. But you can see a couple hundred from your seat that are around you. And literally every single mm-hmm. one of them has a beer in their hand. Mm-hmm. And I, I went through that sober. And the party the night before the race, mm-hmm. sober while while my dad and we were staying with some friends of his and, and their kids and just everyone's drinking and eating. And I didn't have, I was so still just kind of immersed in a drinking culture, even though I was trying not to drink, that I was so ashamed. I mean, I was more ashamed to not be drinking than I was of mm-hmm. my drinking actions at that point. Mm-hmm. The fact mm-hmm. that I couldn't handle it. I wasn't willing to go as far as calling myself an alcoholic at that point, not even close. But the fact that I felt I had enough of a problem that I needed to abstain through this weekend. I mean, I remember the night before the race when the festivities kind of wound down and everyone went and found a bed to sleep in. I remember laying in bed and just being so thankful that the party was over that I could hide by myself Mm -hmm. in this dark room and just melt into my pillow and and let the shame wash over me without anyone else seeing it. Mm I was embarrassed to stand in the kitchen with a glass of water in my hand. Mm-hmm. I was embarrassed when my dad's friends, who I hadn't seen since I was a kid, would say, hey, tell me tell me about your career. Tell me about your little daughter. Tell me about your life. I mean, these are great, wonderful, positive things mm-hmm. that I should be excited to talk about. And all I could think about is, that guy's got a gin and tonic in his hand. Uh, he must think I am such a pussy sitting here drinking yeah, water. Yeah, I mean, that's how my mind worked at that point. So, so you were saying that the shame of not drinking was more than the shame of, of drinking like and, and doing something wrong. Is that what you were getting Absolutely. At? Even, yeah. even at that indie weekend, all I could think is, if I drink again, when I drink again, I've got to stay in control. Mm. I've got to find a way to stay in control above all else because I can't go through this embarrassment of being the only guy that, that can't drink. Just kind of devastating at that point. And that's another barrier to sobriety because sometimes when people come into my my office it's almost like they feel that sobriety is a defeat absolutely that alcohol like won the war absolutely i mean that's the perfect way to put it mm-hmm. and i obviously i wasn't ready to give up the war yeah. because this was 07 and i drank for 10 more years there were there was 10 years where i had admitted I, I don't I wouldn't say the word alcoholic yet but that drinking isn't good for me mm-hmm. to the time that I quit and that was hell I was hell on earth mm-hmm. man the battles that I would have I would try I mean all alcoholics do this I would set rules for myself mm-hmm. I'm only gonna drink on the weekend <laughs> and or I'm only gonna drink beer because beer can't hurt me as much as liquor and to some extent that's true because I'm the kind of drinker that I drink at the same pace no matter what's in my hand so if I have a glass of whiskey on the rocks in my hand, I'm going to drink it just as fast as yeah. I'm going to drink a beer. So it was, it was, it, all it did was extend the trauma to switch to mm-hmm. just beer because I'd have good nights. I'd have nights where I didn't yeah. screw it up. I didn't go overboard and I'd be yeah. like, there, 
All I got to do is do that for the rest of my life. Well, tell me about, because I'm interested in, in Sherry's response. So this is 07. So you are not only having this internal battle about drinking, what is Sherry's response? Has she told you, you know, like, 07, Matt, please stop alcohol? Just curious. Oh, man. Um, well, to, to back up just a yeah. tiny bit further, she comes from a family mm. with a lot of alcoholism in it. Her father was an alcoholic. He About the time we met in the mid-late 90s, he passed away of cancer. But certainly his lifestyle drinking excessively on a daily basis led him to make lifestyle decisions that probably could have led to the cancer. I can't draw a direct line, but he died young, way too young, and he was an alcoholic. Um, Her brother-in-law was an alcoholic, and so it just, it wasn't, she has, she's told me many times when we met in college, now we're both drinking heavily at that time, but everyone we know was (laughs) drinking heavily, so there was nothing shocking Mm -hmm. about that. She looked at me and said, okay, this guy's kind of smart, he's going to get his degree, his, he comes from this family that's had some success financially and just stability-wise. She came from an unstable family, mm-hmm. and my family, my parents were together. All of my aunts and uncles were still together. So she said, this is great. This is good for me. And slowly over time, I think the thing that makes me feel the worst is watching her realize that alcoholism doesn't discriminate. Mm-hmm. It, doesn't, it doesn't say, oh, this upper-middle-class family where everyone's still married they won't be affected because she didn't think we would be. Mm-hmm. And so as my drinking continued to be heavy and daily, it, it just drove a wedge between us. There were very few times. There were times certainly where we talked about, I mean, she talked about divorce. There was one time when she threatened to leave me as an ultimatum. We had, I don't remember the year exactly, middle, uh, somewhere in that 10-year period where I was drinking but and knew I was in trouble. She said, I'm out. I'm going to take, I think we had two kids at the time probably. She said, I'm out, and the kids are gone, and it's just over. And I think that got me to stop for a couple of weeks. Mm -hmm. And then I convinced her that I had this new plan for trying again. And so really it, it did two things to Sherry. It wore her down. I mean... Every time I would try to stop, and then I would say, I'm going to start again, but here's why it's going to be different. At the beginning, she would try to believe that, and then toward the end, she just didn't have any energy mm-hmm. to listen to me. And it made her emotionally, physically, just disgusted with mm-hmm. me. So we stayed together because we had kids, and we stayed together yeah. because we had a business together. Yeah. And we stayed together because she, and I too, she didn't want to, fail she didn't want to run back to little spencer indiana and admit defeat but it was hard in that letter i referenced that i wrote 10 years into our relationship in in 05 or 04 pardon me Mm -hmm. 04 i put in there that you know 10 years ago we were madly in love and now in 04 i'm madly in love with you and i don't know how you feel about me and she didn't dispute it Mm -hmm. so we i wouldn't i mean she was She's, she's kind of a pessimist to begin with and definitely a realist. So I wouldn't say we were the kind of couple that we had we had a third kid and then a fourth kid because we thought that'll solve all our problems. I mean, maybe I thought that, but she definitely didn't. Mm-hmm. She, she didn't, you know, the glass was half empty for Sherry. Yeah. And 
Well, and it seems like from, from her perspective, too, all of this, all of her, her growing up and it would be safe to say trauma associated with, with alcohol uh -huh. of, of her upbringing. In a way, here we go again. Now she's, you know, I remember you were saying, okay, here's this guy. You know, he comes from a stable background. He's motivated. He's going to get a job. And then she realizes, oh, wow, I'm doing this again. My husband's an alcoholic. Yeah. Just like my dad. Yeah. And you, I think you mentioned just like her, her brother-in-law. Yeah. And that that's interesting. And you 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 mentioned that maybe her disillusionment of oh goodness, here we go again. Yeah, I mean it was crushing when I think back mm. on it. To think you've got your whole life in front of you and you're going to have kids and you're going to have this. Because she didn't want to be rich or 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 famous. She just wanted to have a good life, you know, free of of the trauma that she had experienced and and just to watch when I think it through her eyes, just to watch it slowly unravel that, oh my God, I'm going down that path too. Mm -hmm. I mean, crushing, just soul crushing is the, the term I can think of. And you know, and I've read and I've asked, I've asked wives of alcoholics to, to help me understand why um, it's so common for the daughter of an alcoholic mm -hmm. or someone who has lots of alcoholism otherwise in their family to, to marry someone who becomes an alcoholic. And the, the two responses, I mean, I've heard a, uh, lots of reasons mm -hmm. for it, but the two responses that make the most sense to me are, especially if your father's an alcoholic, you want a chance to, to fix that. Mm -hmm. And you, you're not going to fix it in your father. Sherry's father was dead at this point. But I think one of the reasons she stuck with me might have been, you know, maybe I can be the solution since I wasn't able to, to fix my father. I think there's a piece of that for Sherry. I think that's lesser than the other reason that makes the most sense to me why um, women especially marry who, who have experienced alcoholism marry alcoholics when she saw the early signs when we weren't married yet it wasn't shocking to her mm. and she just stuck it out and mm. when, when uh, I would when I would go overboard I and then I would start apologizing the next day she'd be like all right he didn't do anything I haven't seen before yeah. and he's apologizing so yeah. All right, I'll stick with this guy. Whereas I think someone who had maybe not experienced that would have been like, I'm out. Like, yeah, what's the matter with you? For sure, yeah. So, so for her, it's normal. Sadly. Yeah. Yeah, it wasn't what she wanted, but it was, it was normal. It was normal. So, mm. the trauma that Sherry experienced, I mean, there were sleepless nights. There was staying up all night arguing. There were there were times when my anxiety because, I mean, alcohol. Everyone everyone drinks to calm their nerves and they just mm -hmm. don't understand alcohol is creating the anxiety yeah, that they're, sure. they're dealing with it's for a sure. self-fulfilling prophecy yeah. i mean even moderate drinkers don't understand that they come home and do just have those two drinks and then quit every day mm -hmm. the reason they need those drinks is because the alcohol yeah, is creating exactly. the anxiety exactly but so there were there were sleepless nights when we would argue and there were sleepless nights when i would just be a wreck i would sober up enough at say 3 a.m mm -hmm. and i'd wake up and i would just be inconsolably depressed mm -hmm. and upset with myself and I would I would wake her up not because well I am an ass but not because I was an ass I'd wake her up because I couldn't go through it on my own and so she would have to yeah. and I to just be with the depression yeah oh yeah, yeah. I, I've, I've described it in writing that she knew how to swim in shark infested waters without dumping chum into the water. Like she knew what to say. She would just listen to me. She wouldn't, at that point, she wouldn't start blaming me for what I had done wrong. 
early on she did, but eventually yeah. she learned how to just listen and stare at the ceiling like I was, laying in bed, and just let me say what I had to say to, to get through yeah. that anxiety attack. Yeah. Um, Would you say that was your bottom? Yeah, my, my bottom was, it was a little later on, we, we had all four kids, it was, like I said, 2017, January, and the, the cycle, I got to the point where I finally admitted and realized that the cycle wasn't going to end, there was nothing I could do, there was no amount of control I could exert or rules that I could put in place about my drinking that would get the cycle of depression to end. And I referenced earlier, it's kind of like a balance scale. The euphoric feeling, it was still there. Sometimes if the conditions were right, if I was going to a ball game with some buddies or grilling out on a Saturday night with friends, that euphoria was still there, man. I'd get about two and a half beers in, and I just, that's, that's as good. To this day, that's as good as I've ever felt. And, I, and, I, and I'm willing to admit that's as good as I will ever feel, mm. that euphoric feeling that I could get off of a, two and a half, three beer buzz. And, but that was becoming less and less important mm. and the depression I was dealing with, mm. the alcohol-induced depression, the self-loathing, the anxiety. Didn't, I got to the point where I just didn't want to live. Now, I had four kids and a wife mm. in this business and I kind of, I've always been a religious, spiritual person and I, I just had enough spiritual background and enough responsibility still on my shoulders that I never considered suicide but I definitely reached the point where I wished I was dead mm -hmm. I wasn't going to do it mm -hmm. but if I had died in my sleep I thought that would have been better for everyone involved mm -hmm. and that's and I would admit that I would talk to Sherry about mm -hmm. that and that's a really 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 mm -hmm. dark place to be yeah well, what was Sherry's response to that I'm just curious um she was out of gas man she mm -hmm. was if I had said, let's get a divorce, she'd have been like, fine. If I had said, you know, let's let's move somewhere and try again, wh whatever. It's not going to help, but whatever. Like, yeah. she just didn't have, she was That's numb. Sweet. I think numb yeah. is the best way to yeah. describe it. She didn't, when I would say, I wish I was dead, she didn't say, oh, my God, oh, my God, what yeah. are we going to do? I mean, she definitely thought I should go seek therapy. She knew I had to quit drinking, but, you know, I mentioned the one time she gave me an ultimatum. Um, there were other things she at one point called my parents and she called my parents a couple of times in the middle of the night when we were yeah. arguing one time I didn't know she had called them I had passed out and they showed up the next day they were just oh, there wow. in the afternoon and wow. they live in New Jersey we live in Colorado yeah. and I was shocked and you know they played it off like oh we thought a surprise visit would be fun uh, but I didn't buy that I didn't yeah. that. did they address your alcohol at all yeah yeah and they tried they were at a loss up you know as much as I have, and I'm, I'm getting over it, but as much as I have anger for my parents because they didn't teach me to fear alcohol the way we teach mm -hmm. kids to fear the undertow in the ocean, they did the best they could, and they didn't know any better. I mean, parents, just not part of parenting in their era was to scare the crap out of your kids about mm -hmm. the dangers of alcohol. So they were at a loss. They, they still, to this day, my mom, she blames herself for what could I have done more when you were an alcoholic as an adult, and I tell her, Mom, there's nothing you could have done at that point. Mm -hmm. I wish things had been a little different in my childhood, but there's nothing you could have done at that point. Yeah. So they, they came out. I remember my, at one point my dad called the minister at our church and tried to arrange for an intervention, and the minister told him, 
if Matt's not interested in quitting, it's not going to go anywhere other yeah. than cause huge problems okay. in your family. So he wouldn't be a part of it. And, and then I found out that he had made that call. Ah. And, I mean, we went to church every Sunday, and I had a good relationship with this man. Mm -hmm. And I spent inordinate amount of, of time, inordinate amounts of time trying to hide my addiction mm -hmm. from the rest of the world. And here my dad had just uncovered my secret to mm -hmm. my minister. Oh, wow. I was so pissed off about that. Yeah. I mean, yeah. livid. I felt like my relationship was ruined with this man uh. because here I had been pretty successfully honestly that's another part of this I haven't really talked about I've been pretty successfully hiding this from everybody yeah, I mean yeah. sure I we'd go out with friends and I'd go too far once in a while and I'd pass out in the cab on the way home yeah. but even that wasn't you know it wasn't sending up alarm bells for anyone yeah. I'm like geez Matt went too far tonight I but it, it wasn't like I went out with these people every weekend and did it it would once a year that would happen. Yeah. Well, how did it feel when you when you realized that your minister found out? Oh. That your minister knew. I was so upset, and mm -hmm. I was just distant from him for a long time. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I just felt betrayed. I felt like, because the lie was so important to me at that time, keeping up mm -hmm. this, this impression that everything's fine. I mean, I would put so much effort into that. I can remember there was a time when we had been at a party at a neighbor's house, and I fell asleep on their front porch swing during the party. You know, we all joked, oh, Matt's had a long week, worked hard this week. And and that was true, and I, had, mm -hmm. I hadn't gotten much sleep that week. But if I hadn't had six beers in me, I wouldn't have fallen asleep on that front porch swing. Mm -hmm. So the next day, I get up really early, and I start mowing the lawn. And I'm looking across <laughs> the street at my neighbors like, see me out here, I'm mowing the lawn. And I think, I, if I remember correctly, I took a shower and shaved before I mowed yeah. the lawn because yeah. I wanted to look that clean oh, and sparkling wow. to my neighbors. Yeah. Nothing to see here. Everything's fine. Yeah. Everything's fine. I go to work every day. Uh, I always pick up the kids after whatever event they're attending. I'm not an alcoholic. I don't I don't get up and start drinking whiskey in the morning. Everything's mm -hmm. fine. Everything's fine. Yeah. And that lie was for the sake of my neighbors. It was the sake for, for the sake of my reputation and it was for yeah. the sake of my own sanity. And it got just so arduous and so uh -huh. time consuming. It it occupied my mind was occupied with nothing but drinking and whether that was whether I was actively drinking whether I was looking forward to drinking because the weekend mm -hmm. was coming or whether I was full of shame and regret because mm -hmm. I had drank too much yeah. it was all I thought about so yeah. it was it was tormenting and isn't it ironic too the length we go to to keep it hidden oh yeah to you know to I, I guess maybe like avoid feeling shame yeah. about our addiction but conversely, all we need, the, that honesty is, I feel, what makes us change, but it's also liberating. So, yeah, I mean, <laughs> in, in, in ways that I couldn't even imagine mm -hmm. back then. I, I, so when I, when I finally hit the rock bottom for me, which I, I never had a DUI, I never had financial collapse, my wife stuck with me, God bless her. I never got, you know, I had a couple of, drinking tickets in college mm -hmm. I never got really arrested um, so I had no legal jeopardy no nothing to deal with there never got fired so my bottom was just this overwhelming depression that I mm -hmm. couldn't I couldn't manage anymore you couldn't manage the alcohol or just manage life I couldn't get out of bed yeah. I, I mean I did I can remember Monday mornings just the it was the worst and this was at a time when I was my rules, right, were that I would only drink on the weekends. 
and weekend for me was I played soccer in a men's league on Thursday nights. So as soon as we finished our game on Thursday, we would start drinking, and then I would drink on Friday night and then Saturday and Sunday. And so Sundays often I would drink a lot throughout the day because I knew that my party was coming to an end and I had my three days of sobriety come out. And, like, I would sneak drink so Sherry didn't know how much I was drinking. Mm. And I would often just go down in the basement and watch TV and sulk. It wasn't it wasn't happy drinking. It wasn't There was nothing mm. joyous about it. It was awful. It was yeah. awful. Yeah. I mean, just this low, self-loathing mm. and just misery, kind of hard to even describe. And I would drink mm. more to make it feel better, and it would just make it feel worse at that mm. point. And then Monday morning would roll around more like 3 o'clock in the morning would roll around I'd wake up and realize just how disgusted I was with myself so that just got too overwhelming I remember the the last night I drank I had argued with Catherine actually my daughter because she was out with some friends and she wanted to stay out later than we had agreed and it was a school night and I I was really short with her I didn't think curse at her or I didn't do anything really wrong but it kind of set me over an edge that I had had this argument with her on the phone and I went down and went down to the basement and just drank heavy mm. for the next couple hours and then passed out and and I woke up and it was yeah just this sense of defeat just complete and total mm. defeat and the, def- the defeat was like three-pronged it was yes I can't handle my drinking I am not mm. in control of this mm-hmm. I'm an alcoholic this and I had long been calling myself an alcoholic by this point for years I had been calling mm. myself an alcoholic but just trying to manage it so that was part of it. The other, the other part was, another part was how am I going to handle the shame of being sober if I try again? I had tried a half mm-hmm. a dozen or more times, real attempts at sobriety. I'm talking six, nine months once I made it sober before I started mm-hmm. drinking again, and just the, how am I going to deal with the shame of being the only yeah. one not drinking? Yeah, was another piece of it. And then the third piece of just defeat was, I've failed at sobriety so many times already. I have no faith in myself that I'll be able to do it this time. Uh, I mean, it was, I talked, I, I called it, I call it the pit mm-hmm. in, in my writing. I call mm-hmm. it the pit. And it's, it's like this hole that's so deep and so cold and so dark and so lonely. And it's straight up and down on the sides and there's no ladder or rope. And you are just, mm-hmm. it's almost worse than death. I, I, I knew I had to get sober and I couldn't imagine that it was even possible mm-hmm. at that time. So that was... That was rock bottom for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So and I'm, I'm kind of like, what came to mind when you were sharing that was you downstairs in your basement on the couch in the pit. Yeah. <laughs> that, that was the visual I got. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, the pit really, so that would be bad, but the pit was the 3 okay. o'clock in the morning the when I'd wake up. 3 o'clock in the morning. And I'd I be, gotcha. I wouldn't be sober, but I'd be more sober, sober enough that all of this yeah. just, it would all hit me. And I can remember just staring at the ceiling fan above our bed, and uh, it's it's like the feeling of despair. I'd look at the clock and be like, I got to get up in an hour and a half or whatever it was. And I, I just, oh man, if if that ceiling fan had sped up and then dropped on my head right then, yeah. it would have been a welcome relief. It yeah. was just. But so then. Well, let, let me let me ask you this. So, because you have done a 180. You are. You now have a blog that's awesome, called Sober and Unashamed, mm-hmm. and you are living the. You're living sobriety. You're living recovery, and so this is a complete opposite of 
the, the shame of being sober, because you're addressing the shame head on right now. You don't feel like a failure, you know, being sober. So tell me more about this, this change you made, you know, from the rock bottom, from the depression of visualizing, you know, hoping, so you're hoping the fan speeds up and comes down and, and, and takes you out. How do you do it? Man, it, it was it was as much, I, I tried a lot of the things that I had tried other times when I got sober and just the moon and the stars lined up for me this mm. time. And I've got to thank God and say there's mm. some divine intervention in there. Yeah. There just has to be because one of the things that would bring me comfort when I was trying to quit is I would read, I've read mm. probably at this point close to 100 books about alcoholism. Nice. Nice. And I read clinical stuff. I've read about brain chemistry and mm-hmm. um, how alcohol affects your body. And that's that's interesting to me, but that didn't help ease my pain the way memoir did. I would mm-hmm. read books written by alcoholics who had gotten sober. And it wasn't even the part where they'd talk about getting sober. It was the part when they would talk about their addiction mm-hmm. that would just resonate with me. And it, it was at 5 o'clock in the evening, I... When, when I was in early sobriety, I would start to get the itch, like, oh, the witching hour, mm-hmm. it's time to drink. Mm-hmm. And if I would be able to find a way to just go sit by myself and read some of these memoirs and read about the pain other people would, had gone through, it would ease uh, my anxiety like nothing else, and mm-hmm. it would ease my sense of shame like nothing else. Mm-hmm. So there was a lot of reading involved in my sobriety. One of the kind of clinical things I did read, I, I, I read enough about how brain chemistry works and what alcohol is doing to your body that I was able to make my subconscious and my conscious mind, this sounds so hokey, I feel goobery saying yeah, yeah. this, Go for but it. I was able to convince myself that alcohol is a poison. Mm-hmm. And even people that drink alcohol in small quantities, they're just handling the poison better than mm-hmm. I was. Because if you think about what alcohol does, it reduces your functionality in your brain. I mean, that's what it does. And that feels mm-hmm. really great mm-hmm. to some extent, yeah. you know, at some level. But that's what it's dump, It's doing. It's killing brain cells. Mm-hmm. It's it's replacing the, um, the parts of your brain that feel pleasure. It's creating this artificial pleasure sensation. It's, manip- it's not just manipulating your brain. It's like hijacking your brain. And when I came to grips with that, that helped a lot. It helped me say... You know, even my dad, who has his two gin and tonics a night and drinks beer on the weekend, he's doing damage to himself. Mm-hmm. And there's no safe amount of alcohol. This stuff's bad for you. That Adding that to the memoir reading that, that helped me feel like there were millions of other people out there in the same shoes I was in, those two things kind of combined to make me feel better. And then, you know, I, I do write a lot. I write a lot about mm-hmm. addiction and recovery. And a lot of people have asked me, is, was that what got you over the hump to, to make it to sobriety? And, you know, it, it was a component, but, but the, the piece of the writing that got me to stay sober and, and what I describe as permanently sober, I hope permanently sober, is the honesty and the coming out mm. part of it. When I finally admitted to the world mm. that I was an alcoholic, my neighbors across the street who watched me mow the lawn with a shaved face at 8 o'clock on Saturday morning, <laughs> when I admitted to them that I was an alcoholic, when I admitted to friends that loved to drink with me and just once a year would see me go too far, that no, that wasn't once a year going too far. I'm an alcoholic. That changed everything. Mm. I, 
I had relationships with people that were just kind of casual relationships and they would come up to me with tears in their eyes mm. and like I can remember a couple specific occasions where I remember one where a, a woman a friend of mine that I'd been friends with for probably a dozen years casual friends nothing close she took my hand and she squeezed it and she was crying and she just said thank you and I didn't know what to say and she didn't know what to say and she was all choked up and she walked away that's I don't great. know that's if that great. I don't know if her husband's a drinker I don't yeah. know if she's a drinker I don't know if her yeah. dad I don't know what her story is but it's there yeah. and it's painful and yeah. stuff like that just it just started to make what I was trying to do more permanent yeah well and you're doing what worked for you yeah sharing your story yeah absolutely absolutely I, I know one of the things that we want to do with this podcast is to talk about how there are so many different ways to get sober and different things work for different people and recovery means a different thing for everybody you talk to. I was never an AA guy. Mm-hmm. I There were things about Alcoholics Anonymous that troubled me and I know we'll go into further mm-hmm. depth about that. I, and, and I want to be clear, I'm not an AA basher either. If it mm-hmm. works for you, I think mm-hmm. it's great. Anything that works for you, I think is great. Mm-hmm. But for me, the anonymity piece is troubling because... Yeah. When I've been honest with people about my addiction, not people that are also have an addiction that I'm talking to in a church basement, but when I'm mm-hmm. talking to, frankly, the world about it, it solidifies my sobriety. It, and one of the ways it does that is, who is going to drink with me now, Jason? <laughs> I mean, I've told these heart-wrenching, awful stories yeah, yeah. about not only myself, but effects I've had on my wife. If yeah. one, I mean, I didn't have, you know, derelict, awful gutter dwelling friends i had yeah. responsible have a family yeah. go to work friends you're those gonna, guys if i show up at the bar and pull up a stool next to them they're going to be like get the hell out of here yeah well they know too you're going to bum them out eventually right absolutely <laughs> absolutely um but you said something important and this is going on the anonymity piece because this was also very important for me in my sobriety now you mentioned the aa Yes, it, it fundamentally is anonymous, but what sort of turned the tide for me to have a significant amount of sobriety was admitting to my sponsor, my AA sponsor, that I'm an alcoholic. More precisely for me, that I'm an addict. Mm-hmm. Admitting that with someone else, exactly what you're talking mm-hmm. about, mm-hmm. It, was, it was a huge piece. Yeah. And I agree with you 100%. And again, that's why... Another reason why we're doing this podcast is for our own recovery of accountability, of admitting it, and also admitting it that, yes, I'm an addict, you're an alcoholic, however you want to phrase it, is that we're okay. Yeah. Our life is so much better right Uh, now. Yeah. And especially sharing your story. And I do thank you for sharing that, too, because, wow, you you, you, you came from the pit. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. You pulled you pulled yourself out of the pit, and obviously sobriety is not a hundred percent pink cloud. This is so great. My life is perfect. Everything falls into place. Of course, there's problems, but the problems are way different now. Yeah. Learning to live with emotions. Yeah, is learning wonderful. to live with emotions. Right. Yeah. When you're when you're sad or mad or yeah. disappointed, you just don't go make that go away. Because I can make it go away. I can make yeah. it go away fast. Yeah, for sure. But uh, that wasn't a solution, and it took mm-hmm. me many years to figure that out. Yeah, for sure. Well, and this is a question too that I would, I what came up to me, and we may share this for or expand on it for a different episode was the why. 
why do you think your dad could have two drinks and you couldn't? Uh, I think one, one of the things, and, and actually at your surprise birthday mm-hmm. party that I attended not yeah. too long ago, I met a, another, a colleague yeah. of yours, a therapist, and the way he described it is perfect. He said, mm-hmm. everyone's got their poison. Just a lot of us haven't found it yet. And I think the reason that I stuck with alcohol instead of getting heavily involved in weed or cocaine or, or any other substances, it hit me just right. Mm-hmm. I mean, it created this euphoria that I don't think my dad feels. I know Sherry doesn't because she and I have had long discussions mm-hmm. about this. She, when she drinks, she gets a little bit, well, um, inhibitions go away and she gets a little giddy and giggly and maybe a little dizzy and she knows when she's having too much and she doesn't want anymore because it doesn't feel good. That doesn't exist for me. Mm-hmm. There's no amount that's too much. So I think I think people who are you know normal drinkers or social drinkers, it just doesn't hit them the mm-hmm. way it does me. There's no way that millions of people can drink two beers and feel the way I did and just be like, well, that's yeah. it. I'm done yeah, for the night. For sure. I, mean, I remember I used to joke, it was it was just hard for me to watch my dad would when we were adults and we would vacation together. We might have a couple of beers during the day. I'd, he'd have a couple. I'd have six. Yeah. And then he'd have a couple of gin and tonics, and then maybe we'd have some wine with dinner. And then he'd go get a glass of milk and a cookie. And I'd be like, w- what are you doing? Yeah. What? What? Yeah. Like, don't we That's have some funny. cognac, or do I just yeah. go back to drinking beer? Because one of those two <laughs> things is happening. I'm not having milk and cookies. Yeah. So yeah. It clearly, I think for some people, it just doesn't hit them. And maybe... Maybe, you know, for my dad, meth is the thing yeah. that would have hit him that way. Yeah, yeah, and he's sure. just fortunate that he's never come across meth in his life and never mm-hmm. will. Because yeah. that's what I believe. I, I don't yeah. think, certainly there are personalities. I mean, there's some truth to the, there's addictive personalities. But really, I think what it is, is everyone's mm-hmm. got their poison and yeah. some people just haven't found it. Yeah. And yeah. God bless them if they haven't. Fair enough. That works. Yeah. Is there anything else you would like to add, Matt? You know, we've got a long run on this podcast, hopefully, mm-hmm. and we're going to... Yeah talk about a bunch of different subjects and and i'm just excited that we're we're getting it going there there are definitely pieces i've left out of the story but we'll yeah. we'll weave them in other places in the mm-hmm. in the podcast and yeah. uh, well for me it was beneficial is hearing your story you know the, the thing about when people share their story is people like hearing it you yeah. know because we're able to connect like Absolutely. i feel connected to you after you shared that story I know that may sound kind of like hokey pokey therapisty, but it's the truth. Yeah. And, you know, especially in, in going to AA, going to speaker meetings, I really enjoy those. You know, just kind of putting yourself out there. It's It benefits a listener, but also why we do it too, it benefits you. Yeah. Yeah, the feedback that I've gotten, I mean, I'll say humbly, and, and this is not to brag but I've definitely in my writing I've helped people I, I know mm-hmm. for a fact I've helped people sober up and that's good and that feels good but but that connection you talk about mm-hmm. that's where it's at with people that don't necessarily even have an addiction themselves but have it in their family and they mm-hmm. have to deal with it oh, yeah. and just they just look at me differently now mm-hmm. there's there's something there this this mm-hmm. meaningless kind of throwaway relationship that I had with people colleagues or or church parishioners or just friends where whatever could say hi and move on now there's something there's something deep there and that that's really uh that's i mean it's life-changing it's it doesn't replace the euphoria that i used to get from bob but it's a different 
It's a different honey for you. It's a good way to keep it. It's definitely good.